0: Welcome to my brother, my captain, my podcast, a long expected party celebrating the Lord of the Ring films nigh 20 years hence. Usually we work through the films, one scene at a time, but this is some other devilry. The story of Middle-earth is deeply tied to the bonds of fellowship our characters hold, and we want to do episodes that allow us to delve greedily into them to show their quality. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear
1: Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's
0: episode is Raven and Gold, where we edit out six hours of Emily screaming (laughs) to bring you a character analysis of Eowyn and Faramir in tandem. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films.
1: already covered most of the history of the men in our Boromir episode all the way back in episode 10. So I'm going to spare you all the chat about the men and just dive straight into the character history. But if you really want to get more context for these two characters in particular, I would really, really, really recommend checking out some of our previous episodes that deal with Numenor. It's not something I could fit into the amount of time that we've got for these episodes, but the question of Numenor and its relationship to the history of the men of Gondor is something that I feel is very important for Faramir's character and something that we will be circling back to quite a lot when we deal with particularly Denethor and Return of the King. But we're not going to do that now, we're just going to dive straight into the character history. Born in 2983 of the Third Age, the second son by five years of Finduilus, daughter of the Prince of Dolamroth, and Denethor, the then-son of the steward II of Gondor, Faramir was, let's say, a not particularly interesting child. A year after his birth, his father became steward of Gondor, and four years after that, his mother Finduilus died. Denethor never remarried. Little is given in canon about Faramir's life in the 30 years between the death of his mother and the first battle for the bridge at Osgiliath. We do know that Gandalf, known as Mithrandir, visited Minas Tirith at least once. This visit is likely the visit in which he discovers that the ring in Frodo's keeping is indeed the one ring, placing that visit around 3003, when Faramir was 20. Whereas Icthelion of Gondor sought out the counsel of those out with Gondor. Thor was more skeptical of his foreign neighbors, and relations with them began to deteriorate. Though we know that Boromir made at least a few trips to Rohan before 3018 when he departed Edoras in search of Imladris, we know Faramir never made any trips, which is why he's unfamiliar with the second character we're focusing on in this episode, Eowyn. Eowyn was born in Aldberg, Rohan's second city, in the year 2995. Her brother Eomer, who is her senior by four years, is her only constant family. Their father Aomund, lord of Aldberg, died while chasing orcs through the Ammon wheel in 3002, and their mother Theodwyn, sister to Theoden King, died six months later of grief. Thereafter, Eowyn and Eomer, ages 7 and 11 respectively, were moved to Edoras to become the wards of Theoden. I should here point out that neither Eowyn nor Eomer are princesses or princes, Eomer inherited his father's title as the Lord of Alberg, and later lived there prior to the Ring War, but Eowyn's title is Lady and has no formal rank attached to it. Like Faramir, little is known about Eowyn's young life, except that she became the target of Grima's lust, that she was trained at least tacitly in armsmanship, and that she had no visible women companions around her. Of Eowyn and Faramir both, this is about the upper limit of canonical information available to us. So I want to shift gears into talking about why their stories are included in The Lord of the Rings and why that matters. There are myriad political and cultural points made manifest in each of their stories, all of them arguably as important as the last. But I want to boil both of these characters' seemingly different stories down into one theme, loneliness and communion. We meet Eowyn first, and she is introduced to us with this description.
0: The woman turned and went slowly into the house. As she passed the door she turned and looked back. Grave and thoughtful was her glance, as she looked on the king with cool pity in her eyes. Very fair was her face, and her long hair was like a river of gold. Slender and tall she was in her white robe girt with silver, but strong she seemed and stern as steel, a daughter of kings. Thus Aragorn for the first time in the full light of day beheld Eowyn, Lady of Rohan, and thought her fair, fair and cold. Like a morning of pale spring that has not yet come to womanhood.
1: And several chapters later, when we speak to Faramir, Sam describes him like this.
0: Ah, oh, well, sir. You said my master had an Elvish air, and that was good and true. But I can say this, you have an air too, sir, that reminds me of of well, Gandalf of wizards.
1: Maybe, said Faramir. Maybe you discern from far away the air of Numenor. Good night. But Sam, we should note, has traveled for quite some time with Aragorn, who is heir to the most notable house of Numenor, and it's very unlikely that Sam would mistake Numenorianness with being alike to Gandalf. Whatever the particularities of the comparison, one thing is important. Eowyn and Faramir are both characters set viscerally, perhaps violently, apart from their people. The key difference between them, then, is how they are set apart. Eowyn's isolation, as we've already talked about in many episodes, is a byproduct of patriarchy. Eowyn is a woman alive in an obsessively patriarchal culture, and, for the fact of her being a woman, is deprived of the right to thrive according to the rules and customs of her people. But this is shown to us as an ineffectively passive thing. Eowyn has not chosen to be apart from everyone else. She has had it thrust upon her. And we see this repeat itself over and over again. Eowyn's anguish is undeniable, and so bitterly painful it's often hard for us as the readers to witness. But it's also confused. At times, she is angry at not being allowed to fight and win her eternal glory. At others, she is angry at reckless action, as with Aragorn in the paths of the dead. At other moments, she is angry that she is forced to live when all she wants is to be dead. Eowyn herself, it is clear, can't name her own pain. And this is precisely because she has had no say in it. But Faramir is a different animal entirely. Though Tolkien goes out of his way to explain that there are some innate differences between him and his compatriots, his preternatural ability to command men and beasts for one, and his extreme good fortune for another, it's carefully revealed to us that most of Faramir's isolation is self-imposed, done for ideological purposes. In fact, Faramir is perhaps the most overtly ideological figure in the books. When we meet him, he delivers roughly 9,000 words of historiographical critique laundered as exposition. He gainsays popular customs in Gondor, he decries the valorization of war, he even makes the fascinating argument that the stewards are and were more successful than the kings, but that he nevertheless wishes for the kingship to return to Minas In Return of the King, we are told that Faramir is held in lesser regard than his brother by the people of Gondor because he is so ideologically distinct from them. But Faramir's circumstances are effectively no different to his brother. They are both young, able-bodied men who are showed to be highly capable warriors. Faramir, unlike Eowyn, could conform to cultural norms if he so chose. But he didn't, and he is, therefore, a singular and solitary figure. Eowyn, as we know, commits an act of treason as recklessly and recklessly endangers her people when she rides from Dunharrow. She is lucky in that she ultimately slays the Witch King with Mary's help, but in so doing, she is disabled quite drastically and taken to the Houses of Healing. This act of defiance, however, does not define Eowyn's personality. We're actually told quite plainly that this is an aberration, that she is no natural-born rebel. Eowyn's story, then, is a parable about what happens when one holds themselves dutifully loyal to customs that go against their health and safety. The center cannot hold, and the whole thing collapses. Eowyn is not a character who rebels often. She is a character who rebels too little, and who therefore explodes violently when she does rebel, almost losing her life in the process. When Eowyn is asked to stay in Rohan and rule over the Rohirrim and ensure their safety and security while the soldiers are away, it is unsavory to her, it goes against what she wants, and she doesn't do it. Faramir's story is quite different. Yes, they both end up in the Houses of the Healing for near-suicidal acts, but Faramir is not a character who rebels too little. Actually, it seems that Faramir is quite comfortable with rebellion. And possibly one of my favorite interactions in fictional history, Denethor nails Faramir to the cross after Faramir admits to letting the Ringbearers go in Athelion. If what I have done displeases you, my father said Faramir quietly. I wish I had known your counsel before the burden of so weighty a judgment was thrust on me.
0: Would that have availed to change your judgment? You would still have done just so, I deem. I know you well. Ever your desire is to appear lordly and generous as a king of old, gracious, gentle. That may well be fit one of high race if he sits in power and peace, but in desperate hours, gentleness may be repaid with death.
1: So be it, said Faramir.
0: So be it! But not with your death only, Lord Faramir, with the death also of your father, and of all your people, whom it is your part to protect now that Boromir is gone.
1: Do you wish, then, said Faramir, that our places had been exchanged?
0: Yes, I wish that indeed, said Denethor.
1: And while this is cruel from Denethor, it's also worth emphasizing that this is not a one sided catfight. Faramir did something that he knows his father will be angry about. And yet, despite being in the presence of people who are not high ranking lords of Gondor or even their own family, he prods him about it, insisting that Denethor publicly pass judgment on Faramir's actions, though everyone already knows what that judgment will be. And this reveals a fascinating political divergence between the two men. Denethor says that Faramir has erred in his decision to let Frodo and Sam go, because Faramir has placed a higher premium on appearing morally good than on defending his people from certain doom. Faramir's response, callously but beautifully ideological, is, "Yup, I sure did. From this interaction, we get the sense that Faramir's quite used to biting his thumb at his father and other authority figures. But when push comes to shove and Faramir is asked to set aside his sense of individualism to do something that he openly argues is folly, he does. Faramir's suicide mission is not self-imposed. He is not trying to kill himself. He does not want to kill himself. But he is doing it because it is his duty to hold the enemy back until the Rohirrim arrive. It is unsavory. It goes against what he wants. But he does it anyway. Eowyn and Faramir, grievously wounded in battle, are both brought back from the darkness by Aragorn. This is a great moment because it's a combination of folk knowledge, a nurse's comment that the hands of the king are at the hands of a healer, and Faramir straight up shouting, sup, king, to reveal the secret of Aragorn's identity. But the men must go off to war once more, and so Eowyn and Faramir are left behind, with Merry, in the Houses of Healing. I have a piece on our WordPress site, mbmcmp.wordpress.com, dealing in far greater detail with their dynamic in the Houses of Healing. But there are a couple things I want to add to this overall picture. Firstly, I think we would really benefit from looking at their relationship through a Jane Austen's lens. And really, their relationship is quite Austenian. Faramir is, on first glance, set in the Austen hero model. Think Mr. Knightley to Emma Woodhouse, Henry Tilney to Catherine Moreland... Men who, older, or wiser, but neither nor des- condescending nor cruel. To borrow a quote from an unsent letter between French revolutionaries Lucille and Camille Damoulin, I look for your faults, I find them, and I love them. There is, between Faramir and Eowyn, an acknowledgment of faults and a desire to correct them. Not a correction made out of rote adherence to social niceties or constraints, but out of a recognition that these flaws bring unnecessary hurt to the person, and that their correction will only bring greater joy and comfort. It is not out of latent misogyny that Faramir talks at who went off her ledge, re-swords-and-glory-hunting. It's out of a recognition that she has had her time with swords-and-glory, and that it has neither improved her spirit nor her conditions. And indeed, we are given every indication in the text that Faramir himself likely will not take up arms again. So this is a joint pursuit of epilogic passivism, not one bestowed by a paternalistic would-be husband upon a cowed and disempowered young girl. But despite my initial recognition that Faramir seems to be more of a knightlier Henry Tilney, in the end, there is sufficient push and pull between himself and Eowyn to cast him rather more accurately as a Mr. Darcy type. In other words, one who is corrected as much as he corrects. One quote that I think has been really instructive for me particularly particular when thinking about these two is this by Alain Duboton: To be loved by someone is to realize how much they share the same needs that lie at the heart of our own interaction with them. Albert Camus suggested that we fall in love with people because, from the outside, they look so whole, physically whole and emotionally together, when, subjectively, we feel dispersed and confused. We would not love if there were no lack within us, but we are offended by the discovery of a similar lack in the other. Expecting to find the answer, we find only the duplicate of our own problem. And I want everyone to keep in mind this issue of lack as we continue on through this. In the end, Eon and Faramir fall in love, not because the spares need paired, but because they find a melodic answer to themselves in the other. Eowyn's realization comes part and parcel of a realization that the life she has lived and the standards to which she has held herself are unsustainable. She does not change because she falls in love. She falls in love because she has changed. I can't not read that passage, the passage that single-handedly ruined my life and my sanity. So, without further ado, here we go. I wish to be loved by another, Eowyn answered, but I desire no man's pity. That I know, Faramir said. You desired to have the love of the Lord Aragorn. Because he was high and puissant, and you wished to have renown and glory, and to be lifted far above the mean things that crawl on the earth. And as a great Captain May to a young soldier, he seemed to you admirable. For so he is, a lord among men, the greatest that now is. But when he gave you only understanding and pity, then you desired to have nothing, unless a brave death in battle. Look at me, Eowyn. And Eowyn looked at Faramir long and steadily, and Faramir said, Do not scorn pity that is the gift of a gentle heart, Eowyn. But I do not offer you my pity, for you are a lady high and valiant, and have won yourself renown that shall not be forgotten. And you are a lady beautiful, I deem, beyond even the words of the elven tongue to tell. And I love you. Once I pitied your sorrow, but now were you sorrowless, without fear or any lack. Were you the blissful queen of Gondor, still would I love you. Eowyn, do you not love me? Then the heart of Eowyn changed, or else at last she understood it. And suddenly her winter passed, and the sun shone on her. I stand in Minas Anor, the tower of the sun, she said. And behold, the shadow has departed. I will be a shield maiden no longer, nor vie with the great riders, nor take joy only in the songs of slaying. I will be a healer and love all things that grow and are not barren. And again, she looked at Faramir. No longer do I desire to be a queen, she said. Then Faramir laughed merrily. That is well, he said, for I am not a king. Yet I will wed with the white lady of Rohan, if it be her will. And if she will, then let us cross the river and in happier days let us dwell in Farithillion and there make a garden. All things will grow with joy there if the white lady comes.
0: That was excellent. Thank you. Thank you for doing all that. (laughs) I literally have nothing to add to any of that because the movies never gave me a reason to think that much (laughs) harder (laughs) about these characters. No, I kid, I kid. But I think that Austenian lens that you used actually is very appropriate here. Um, and also something I'm not familiar with. So I'm just taking your word for it. That everything you said was
1: accurate and true. It's all bullshit and lies. (laughs) I think like the kind of deception. (laughs) Oh my God. It's almost time. Um, yeah, I, I I guess like kind of the key thing for me and I have spent a disproportionate amount of time thinking about these two little freaks, um, is that like, if there is, you know, if, as you say at the top of this, if the, the key thing about Lord of the Rings, is the bonds of fellowship, um, then there's also something about overcoming loneliness um and and i think there's kind of like there's kind of a two-phase i guess approach to sound like really horrible and corporate about it but like to 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 have friendships and to have fellowship you have to allow yourself to become sort of vulnerable in in a really sort of potentially deeply uncomfortable way and and their their character arcs really um and I would argue even Faramir actually does have a, a discernible character arc, It's really about that sort of fear of kind of taking the plunge and, and allowing yourself to, to be vulnerable and, and, and have a sense of intimacy. And then from there, and only then, can you develop these meaningful relationships and these meaningful bonds of fellowship. And I think it's such an interesting thing because you've already got that sort of willingness to have a sort of sense of intimacy in characters like Frodo and Sam. And so their kind of story is really about putting that bond to the test um, and really about figuring out like, you know, what are the depths to which you will go for the sake of taking care of someone you love. Um, but Farmer and Eowyn's arc is actually, um, will you let yourself Take the plunge, and will you kind of open yourself to to the immense sort of fear and risk of of loving and being loved? And, and I think that is something that, like, you know, I don't want to bitch too much about the the movies because it's just these are two very different things. But like, I think it is one of the remarkable things about the the book in particular that um, I, it, if I could, like, take the way that I feel about these characters and like give everybody else that same feeling like i would because i think it's such like a a kind of like brilliant and for me like personally like revelationary thing Um, and yes i think that's it i think i will cut myself off there but yes those are the history of the two of them Shaggin lads
0: no that's that's interesting to me and i'm possibly going to stumble into a clumsy metaphor here but you know, I think about Tolkien and his the relation his work has with, like, the earth and the land and stuff and, like, tilling good soil, and I feel like some of that can be metaphorically applied to Eowyn and Faramir in yeah. terms of cultivating something about themselves, about the relationship they have with each other, and, like, creating some something where something fertile can grow. It's literally something that they do after the war, you know, when they go to Ithilien, a place that was basically, you know next door neighbors to the land of the dead and it's their responsibility to help it grow again and that becomes an outward manifestation of their both their inner conflicts and then their relationship with each other.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so key, right? Because like um, both AON and Fairmare for like the kind of different reasons are when we meet them kind of obsessed and, and kind of plagued by, by death. Like Eowyn, her entire culture is about warrior well, – like warrior's death and and her whole thing is, you know, I am either going to die, you know, in, in my home under conditions not at my own making or I'm going to die in a battlefield where at least I have some sort of say in it. And and so she's plagued by death in that regard. And and Faramir's actually plagued by death in the sense of like history. um, And he's got this great line that they actually give to Gandalf in Return of the King where it's like, you know – the, the problem with Gondor um, and, and how Gondor sort of fell to, like, its dotage and its kind of, like, um, ignoble kind of recent past is that, like, you know, lords sat in high halls and, and valued the names of the dead more than they valued the, their own living sons. And he's also kind of plagued, you know, in saying this and kind of having these thoughts constantly, he's also plagued by this like eternal specter of death. And and their epilogue is literally exactly what you are saying. It is it is the chance for these two characters to kind of let go of death as this ever-present thing and, and to really focus on, you know, sowing new life. And you know, a lot of sort of feminist critiques of A.O.N. and the end of her character, which I think are all bullshit, by the way, but like, um, is like, oh, well, she's really just going off to be a housewife. And I don't think that's true at all. What she's doing is she's going off and getting a chance to focus on things that aren't miserable and soul sucking. And, and she gets to go off and she gets to bring life. Um And at least as far as the epilogue, like, the the appendices are concerned, it seems to us, like, while Theramir is in name the Prince of Athelion, it seems like she actually takes on all of the political and administrative duties, so she's not going to just be a a housewife. She's going to get to focus on life and rejuvenation in a way that, like, um, you know, I, I guess I kind of... As a political radical, in some ways, that is kind of what I want for everyone. At some point, is everybody should be allowed to like feel the earth beneath their fingertips and watch things come to life. And like, God, she's so fucking lucky for getting it, being able to do that at the end of it all. Um, the meta-history, as in the, the kind of narrative history of, of each of these characters, is really fun. Um, Eowyn was kind of always intended by Tolkien. Um, there's kind of a myth that she is a response to Lady Macbeth. Um Tolkien spends a lot of his works writing uh, responses to Shakespeare. Like there's a lot of stuff he's not super thrilled about in Shakespeare's writing. So some of the really obvious ones are like uh, Theoden and King Lear, or even Denethor and King Lear. Um, and um, we get we get. Um, uh, kind of magically in and in we get a response to Lady Macbeth. Um, and, and Lady Macbeth is a really sort of interesting figure in, in sort of literary history, um, because she is this kind of example of like an incredibly powerful woman who is ultimately screwed over uh, in kind of unspeakable ways by the dipshit men around her uh, and the egotism of men. Uh, and Tolkien, so the kind of story goes... Um, you know, was either reading or saw a version in Oxford of of Macbeth and went, man, Lady Macbeth really got screwed and and chose to write a character who gets to fulfill all of these sort of um, archetypal kind of points of Lady Macbeth. Uh, one of the the kind of key things is, is Lady Macbeth's um, out, damn spot, out uh, monologues where she's trying to wipe, wash the blood off of her, the non-existent blood off of her hands. Or there's also the uh, great speech, the uh, unsex me now hear you spirit speech where she is like, I am obviously so much more competent than the men in my life. And wouldn't it be brilliant if I could have, uh, sort of some sort of like actual disconnect between, uh, me and my, my womanhood so that I could really kind of fulfill the, the failures that all of these men are constantly, uh, forcing on me. Um, so so, so Tolkien, you know, writes Eowyn as this response to Lady Macbeth and, you know, is kind of very at least, successful and unsuccessful. Um, but Eowyn herself actually goes through a couple different iterations in the, the, the drafts for Lord of the Rings. Um, and some of them are more interesting than others. One of the ones that I would like to talk about, because I think it's really fascinating, is at one point... Um, Eowyn was meant to be a, a leader of, a, of an entire battalion of shield maidens, and they were meant to be these, these Amazonian women, these Amazonian warriors of Rohan, who Eowyn led from Dunharrow with the, the acceptance of Theoden uh, to the battlefield at, at the Pelennor Fields. Um, and, and she was meant to slay the Witch King, but there was meant to be this sort of women's army behind her. And, and Tolkien, as we now know, um, went back and got rid of it. And, and one of his kind of very clear and explicit reasons for getting rid of it is that Eowyn's loneliness and the uniqueness of her situation and also the unreality of the shield maidens as a tradition was crucial to giving her plot the, the sort of um, political and symbolic weight that he needed it to have for his wider critique about the, the role of the valorization of, of war in, in societies. Um, and so Eowyn went from Xeno warrior princess to Eowyn white lady of Rohan uh, in, in what is actually kind of funnily um, a perfect mirror of what happened to Eowyn in the screenplay for Lord of the Rings, where she went from not existing at all to being... Uh, uh, a kind of amalgamation of uh, Arwen and Eowyn to being uh, Boromir's sister and Faramir not existing. Uh, so, you know, Tolkien takes her from someone who's always surrounded by women to being totally alone. And uh, New Line Cinema, Peter Jackson, uh, take her from being someone who is all of the women, to quote uh, the awful Rise of Skywalker movie, uh, to someone who is <laughs> kind of halfway a uh, character, uh, but really not doing anything but being uh, just herself. (laughs)
0: oh that's fine and uh back in one of our two towers episodes that dropped a couple months ago there's also a heavy influence from the valkyrie from norse mythology (laughs) which uh emily also laid out back then
1: yeah and um it's funny because the the northmen which came out um god probably a couple oh it was probably a year ago now i hate the passage (laughs) in time um has that great shot of Anya Taylor Joy uh riding into Fuck knows where I really don't know enough about Norse mythology, which is ironic given the source of this podcast. But anyways, it it was such like a perfect kind of like look into what Eowyn would have been if um if Tolkien hadn't updated the draft. Um, And if uh, we haven't recommended that movie enough uh, on this podcast, everybody should go see The Northwind right now. (laughs) Uh,
0: It's funny that you're kicking yourself for not knowing Norse mythology for this Lord of the Rings podcast when I have literally not read anything besides The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings for this Lord of the Rings podcast. So I I think you get a pass on
1: that one. (laughs) Yeah, I yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Faramir. God, what a stupid character uh, for Tolkien to have created. <laughs> I really feel this. Um, so he's got kind of a charming kind of uh, metatextual history in that um, when J.R.R. Tolkien was drafting the Two Towers, and this is really at the pits of World War II in, in uh, the kind of spring of 1944, just before D-Day, we know that he's starting to write the the chapters that deal with Faramir. Um, And he writes this really charming letter to Christopher Tolkien where he says, uh, effectively, and I'm badly paraphrasing it, but uh, a new character has literally walked out of the forest and onto the page and he won't shut the fuck up and his name is Faramir. Um, And he also has this great line where he's like, he was neither invited nor wanted, but I think he has to stay. Um, And it is kind of a delightful sort of insight into what being a writer is and Tolkien's kind of desire to really hammer home the points that he's making. Um, But he also has a really fun kind of addendum to it in a follow-up letter to his son Christopher, where he's like, if Faramir doesn't shut the fuck up, he's going to get relegated either to the appendices or to the prologue, which we do know actually did happen to a character, which is Mary and his uh, lecture on pipeweed, uh, now in the prologue as uh, on pipeweed or concerning pipeweed. So it was possible Faramir did run up to the point of the chopping block and just eked out uh, a a dub there. Uh, But he is kind of interesting in in the kind of meta discourses around uh, Lord of the Rings, precisely because he shows up so often in the letters and because Tolkien has a weird amount to say about him. One thing he does say that I think is a bit of a red herring is that he feels that Faramir is the character that speaks most clearly for him. And this has been interpreted, I would say misinterpreted in the discourse, uh, as is Tolkien self-insert. And I think, like, as a joke, that's fine. Um, but... Um, He isn't actually Tolkien's self-insert for a variety of reasons. One, because his self-insert is barren, uh, which is a whole new level of uh, Gary (laughs) Stu sort of writing. (laughs) Um, But also because I think Faramir diverges quite drastically from Tolkien himself in his behavior and in his actions. So while he may be there to deliver 9,000 words of, here's what J.R. Tolkien thinks about the world that he has created, um, he also has a, a substantial enough divergence from uh, Tolkien's own life and Tolkien's own mannerisms and idiosyncrasies, for him to not fully be a self-insert, and I mean that isn't even Tolkien in his most idealized version of himself in his head would not have thought he was totally Faramir. He just thought that he had an opportunity to use him as a mouthpiece. However, <laughs> all of that said, <laughs> I do think there is one thing that is slightly interesting to mention about uh, this uh, relationship between Faramir and and J.R. Tolkien. Um, which is, um, as we went through, uh, just a couple minutes ago, um, Eowyn undergoes what I think we could call a Damascene conversion, um, in, um, in Minas Tirith, in the Houses of the Healing, where she realizes that the life she has led so far has been effectively a, a life that is detrimental to her, her well-being, and she comes around to this idea that she doesn't need to only, uh, kick around trying to be warrior princess all the time to be happy and fulfilled. Um, this mirrors quite beautifully uh, the fact that Edith Tolkien had to convert to Catholicism to, to marry J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and I know, uh, and and perhaps rightly so, there's a lot of sort of criticism around like women in particular converting to be with men and, and the sort of extent to which these things are pressured or not freely done. Um, but I think if we give this the most good faith interpretation that is humanly possible, um, there is something kind of immensely beautiful about being... So in love with someone that you are willing to um, reconsider your worldview um, and and reconsider perhaps the truth that they hold dear as something that might also be true for you. Um, and you know we are not entirely sure and can't ever really be sure uh, about how much of a devout believer Edith Tolkien became as as a Catholic convert. But there is something I you know in my most earnest and like unironied part of my soul. That I do find quite beautiful about that, and I think that the mirror between um, the the Tolkiens and uh, Faramir and Eowyn in that kind of conversion process and that coming to the light effectively um, is actually worth something, uh, like, it is worth talking about. And I think there is something uh, delightful, we'll put it at that, like, as value-neutral as possible, is delightful, even if it isn't maybe morally or politically good, it is delightful, <laughs> So, uh, after all of this mumbo-jumbo, after the war, uh, they both survived the war. This is phenomenal. Uh, if you haven't yet read the books, uh, I would definitely recommend reading the books, because one of my favorite scenes in literary history happens in Return of the King, which is where um, Baragon, the guard of the Citadel, who has explicitly gone against his orders to save Faramir from, from the pyre of Denethor... Um, is called before the new King Aragorn after his coronation. And Aragorn goes, dude, you badly broke the law. And uh, like, we can't have that. We really can't have lawbreakers Mm -hmm. um, And the highest kind of the Navy SEALs of Gondor just now. Uh, And Baragorn is is like, yeah, yeah, that is true. I definitely did do that. And Aragorn is like, I'm going to exile you. I'm going to exile you to Athelion. I'm going to exile you to Mm Athelion to go be the captain of Faramir's guard. Because, by the way, Faramir is now Prince of Athelion." And we have no indication in the books that Faramir knew this was going to be true before Aragorn says it in the most, like, trolly way possible. So, Baragon is standing there shocked to death because he's getting exiled in the best circumstances possible. And also, Faramir has just found out that he's going to become Prince of Aethylian. So, banger move by Aragorn. Definitely one of his funniest moments in the book. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Faramir and Eowyn, after a year apart... Uh, go to become uh, the prince and lady, not princess, of Ithilien. Um, Faramir also retains his position as steward of Gondor, so he is the steward to Aragorn's king. Um, and it, to be honest, there's not a huge amount of detail uh, in the appendices about what they do. We know for sure they have at least one kid who's called Elboron. Um, and uh, either Elboron or another child of Faramir and Eowyns has a son named Barahir, who wrote down the story of Aragorn and Arwen uh, as uh, recounted in Appendix A of Lord of the Rings. Um, We get little kind of hints and glimpses of things that happen in in their sort of post-Lord of the Rings life. Um, We know that Pippin names his son Faramir, uh, and we know that Eowyn uh, tends to be something of a gift giver because she's cited as having quite a few times sent wagons full of gifts to the Shire. Uh, and may or may not have kept up a correspondence with Sam, Sam Gamgee. Um, so we don't really fully know what happens to these guys after, um, but we do get every sort of indication that is a very happy and good life, uh, which is, I think, really all you can ask for in these kinds of situations.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy for them that they got to go and have their little house on the prairie life afterwards. <laughs> I know that's not accurate, but no, no, it is one much. of the, <laughs> it is one of those things where like, I don't really fault the films for not getting into it, but as someone who is someone who latches on to, let's say, secondary characters and stuff like that, the fact that, um, we really don't get much of either Faramir or Eowyn, uh, in the back half of Return of the King or any kind of, like, they're shot, like, next to each other. So we know that they're probably going to couple up, mm-hmm. um, but really nothing else. And I really think one of the reasons I am such an anti-extended edition anti, I guess, um, is basically because I would have used those kind of ex- extended edition scenes to really pad out the ending of The Lord of the Rings. And yeah. I know <laughs> The Return of the King does have its fair share of endings. It's basically an hour of endings. But I would have liked a, a little bit more of what happened to Legolas and Gimli, like just, oh, let's go explore Middle Earth and let's see what Faramir and Eowyn are going to be going doing. It just kind of feels like the entire cast falls off, and hell, even Aragorn's rule, he just kind of disappears from the story once they <laughs> yeah. have that like coronation <laughs> scene. It's all Hobbits. And like I said, I think the movie works as is because the thematical like through line or emotional through line was the Hobbits. It started in the Shire and it's all about returning to it at the end. But I wish the extended edition scenes did that. Plus the scouring of the Shire, but that's a whole other episode that we're not going to bother with now.
1: <laughs> I think it's also kind of funny that you mention what uh, Legolas gets up to, because um, we actually know that Legolas sets up a commune of elves in Athelion, uh, and his status as Prince of the Woodland Realm um, extends to a very different princedom in the Fourth Age, and... While Gimli is in charge of the glittering caves in Brohan and in sort of establishing a Dwarven colony there, um, Legolas is responsible hand in hand with Aeon and Faramir for revitalizing the land um, of Ithilien and doing as only the elves can do, um, bringing, you know, life and bounty back to this kind of scarred land that has had the, like, Hand of Sauron kind of, not the literal Hand of Sauron, oh, maybe the literal Hand of Sauron, but the the effect of Sauron kind of destroying its uh, soil. And it is from Athelion actually, that uh, Legolas and Gimli shove off to go uh, in their uh, uh, raft, <laughs> their <laughs> duct tape and blue-tagged raft to get to Valinor. So, you know, a, a nice kind of linkage there of uh, all the spares.
0: Yeah, it's actually kind of pleasing to me because from the films, the characters I latched on to were like, Legolas, Sam, Faramir, Pippin. Yeah. Um, so that they're all kind of like interconnected in the post war uh, kind of makes me happy. It's like, oh yeah, I like globbed onto the right group of characters because they're all chilling with each other or at least revere each other. Yeah. Uh, which I really appreciate.
1: Yeah. Big time.
0: So we'll dive into their movie history now, and I guess I'll start with Faramir, or as some online have called his film adaptation, Far From book Amir and film (sighs) Amir. All right, look, Emily went over the rich history informing these characters up top, and I can't really argue in good faith that I wouldn't want a lot of that in a visual recreation of The Lord of the Rings proper. Especially if Faramir is one of your favorite characters, and obviously one of Tolkien's most important, I get being proper hacked off at the film's take on the film. He fills out a role and serves his purpose, but ends up being like a diet Lando Calrissian <laughs> than anything resembling his book character. But I will say this, I did latch on to his film character pretty hard.
1: I will say, in my in my imminent defense, so did I, and I literally only read the books to defend movie Faramir's honor. <laughs>
0: And just so I don't piss anyone else off, I just want to say any defense going forward from here is really divorced from book Faramir and is more how I conceptualized Faramir the first time through, not having read the books, or how usually when I still watch the film, I'm still kind of approaching it as this is a separate work and I'm just kind of treating it as such. For the sake of argument and to defend my favorite movie, The Two Towers, I do think Faramir serves the story being told by Jackson and Boyens and Walsh despite the missed book characterization. A lot of the emotional beats around Faramir and Eowyn still broadly landed in their own context with audiences. Eowyn especially, I'd say, even with our critiques of her depiction, was revelatory or at least satisfying to general movie-going audiences. Her moments in Return of the King are still ballyhooed as people's favorite moments in modern cinema. A great film is always a special confluence of events, the time it was made, the talent attached to it, the tools available to them, and the choices that are made. Two changes drive Faramir in The Two Towers, one based on his character, one based on a structural adaptation choice. I'll start with the adaptation choice, because I think it's broadly considered that the ending of The Two Towers movie just bangs. The ending at Helm's Deep coincided with the flooding of Isengard and Sam's there's some good in this world speech, is quite literally a climax, an orgasmic release of relief, hope, and joy following a somber film and coming off the first film's melancholy ending. The big adaptation choice was to punt half of Sam and Frodo's Two Towers adventures to the Return of the King film, so Shelob could serve as a climax for the first half of that movie, another decision I endorse because I think that sequence is extraordinary and incredibly well placed in the third movie. So this film instead makes the choice for Faramir to be tempted by the allure of the ring, the character choice that we'll get to in a second, and as a result, he takes Frodo with his company to defend Asgiliath. I think the ending at Osgiliath serves the films. First, it clearly establishes what and where Asgiliath is, and why it matters as a military outpost, which will serve the audience well for Return of the King, a film that has no time to drip out that kind of world building. I think it also shows how dire things are for Gondor, especially for me, a non-book reader watching this. We are actually seeing Gondor at war here, being harried at its borders, and even though they pushed back this offensive, it set a tone for me that it was a matter of time before Osgiliath was overrun and the river defense fallen. It also really shows how war is coming to men on all fronts. So this story change serves relevant geography and gives us a look at the reality of For the Boots on the Ground, which I think is great. Honestly, my one wish is that Faramir actually had a little more action-y awesomeness here instead of just the one arrow to send off the Nazgul. I say that mostly as a guy who is actively cheering and analyzing this movie as an action film, but what if he got his version of Boromir's death but, like, didn't die? Like, he just fights off a bunch of people all badass-like. Look, I might be the only person that wants it, but I want it all the same. The second, char- the second choice is a character-driven one, and one I totally get the book folks not liking. But I have to say, I think to my mind in 2002, the change I'm about to discuss trapped for me, and I'm not sure it would if it was more book-accurate. That is the change of having Faramir be more Boromir-like and dealing with his own temptation in the face of the ring. I should just own my role as a Jackson apologist because I get the justification here. It would seem out of place for Faramir to be completely nonplussed about the ring in his presence. We see what the ring did to Boromir, what it's done to Gollum, what it's still doing to Frodo. But we also saw that even Galadriel and Gandalf could be tempted by it, and hell, even at the Council of Elrond, when Frodo brings the ring forth, it's not just Boromir that has avarice in his eyes. Everyone around that pedestal is briefly enraptured by it. By having Faramir struggle with the ring, He feels more of a piece with Peter Jackson's Middle-earth than that. It would feel tonally odd if he wasn't moved by it when it literally destroyed his brother and tempted his own mentor in Gandalf. It's why Tom Bombadil and him spinning the ring on his finger like a basketball was removed. It doesn't fit with the dread and allure the films are playing up for the one ring. For Faramir to put aside the ring, to let it go of his own accord, even if it meant his life was forfeit and would further disrupt his already rocky relationship with his father Denethor, I think that gives film Faramir pathos and an arc here. I know we complain about how all writers in 2022 feel every character needs an arc to work, often to character's detriments, but for the audiences in 2002, I think this felt right. I'll acknowledge the complaint that the harsh handling of Gollum might also be against Faramir's character, but as part of the 2002 dumb audience, that didn't register for me, just because War on Terror vibes? They were at war on the border of Mordor, and here's this goblin-y creature stealing fish from the forbidden pool. I would rather not have Faramir's men kicking Gollum, but hey, completely divorced from the book's context, nothing felt out of place or false to the character or men as presented. And to be honest, I don't think Faramir is the only character worth mentioning. The ring itself is a character, our stand-in for Sauron, and my mind always comes back comes back to Gandalf's warning to Frodo, the ring wants to be found. So to me, it made sense that here, in the presence of the military men of Gondor, the ring would do everything to get everyone to be a little shit to each other and possibly lead to dissension and further shitty behavior uh, leading to the ring's discovery.
1: Yeah. So my (laughs) feeling on movie Farabir is basically this. I think that the logic of needing to add yet another villain or pseudo villain to amp up the ring is like wrong. I don't think the like drama is lessened in the book where the fear and panic of the situation is based on the question of duty versus morality but like I'm kind of at the point where I'm like okay whatever I can't undo that decision. I think my real heartburn over this is that they could have done it better and slightly more lore like consciously if they thought a little bit more about Faramir's character in the book instead of just deciding that he was too OP and then nerfing him. One of my pet loves about Faramir's character in the books is that he's just like an absolute fucking weirdo. Like, and very spooky. So he does this thing where he looks into Gollum's mind and that apparently causes physical pain to Gollum. That's a lot off of a guy who is ostensibly (laughs) on our side. And then there's the fact that he's meant to have this like preternatural control over beasts and manned. And that, for me, is the groundwork for a super-spooky character. It's one of these changes for me that feels like it's born not out of careful consideration of the material, but of kind of a rushed desire to pump out, like you say, just the action movie, and then no real interest in defending those choices, which is what I kind of said at the end of our fellowship coverage is the thing that gives me pause about the second two movies. Really, what I think they should have done is what I'm going to call the Shadow of Wardor approach to adaptation, which is clearly paying attention to the canon, seeing what the implications of that canon are instead of what the pre- precise text is, and boogieing along with the implications in an aggressively confident way. Under no circumstances does Ungoliant wear a 36 double D bra, but the implications of her hyper-feminized description are such that Well, unfortunately, you can see very clearly how they got from point A to point B there. And the sheer, largely absurd confidence in that decision makes it, to be honest, an absolutely unassailable adoption choice.
0: And again, as Emily has explained to us for several episodes, a lot of these adaptation shortfalls can be equally applied to Eowyn's adaptation, even though film Eowyn is still broadly popular with the masses, even if her depiction is a very late 90s brand of feminism. Before Miranda Otto was chosen, the casting called, uh, Allison Duty, the most famous as Indiana Jones lover turns out as a Nazi character from The Last Crusade. Duty had to pull out due to her pregnancy, which there is a whole other conversation about different working conditions for different genders that I feel ill-equipped to have right now. Uma Thurman was also in the running for the role you can see a struggle in the Two Towers script to try and give Eowyn and Otto more material, especially as the most prominent woman in the last two films. They bolster her scenes at court and faint at her wanting to do more in the face of the threat from Isengard. From a movie-only point of view, those scenes at court still work, even if they are twisting Tolkien's Mm -hmm. words. A lot of that credit goes to Otto along with Brad Dourif, Carl Urban, and Bernard Hill. Mm -hmm. The later Two Towers stuff of which she is in very little and mostly seen, not heard, which I assume A.O.N. would complain about in Universe <laughs> 2, is easier to be down on because you know they have to save her quote-unquote badassery for Return of the King and the Witch King, so her having a sword anywhere here might lessen that impact. So she's mostly shunted off in the back half of the film. And as Emily so keenly pointed out in our Meduseld episodes, we have this character that's lashing out against patriarchy with our any clear targets for it, like her king, her brother, or Aragorn, except for Grima, who the other men just kind of let go free. (laughs) She gets a lot more stuff to do in Return of the King, which makes sense since her story has a clear trajectory and plot beats to hit. Durnhelm, The Witch King, Houses of Healing, the last save for the extended edition. And though this podcast has expressed some mixed thoughts on her slaying the witch-king of Angmar, it is a beloved moment in modern cinema, infinitely quotable and gifable, which I'm sure makes Tolkien roll in his grave, but it's hard to deny it's a prominent moment in blockbuster filmmaking. That said, we lose a lot of her best book parts. Her rebuke of Aragorn before he takes the pass of the dead, or her actual words and defiance in the face of the witch-king. I Am No Man makes a great gif, like I said. But reducing her last stand to just that misses so much richness in her laughing in the Nazgul's face. I don't want to get too far down this road because I feel that is going to be a huge podcast episode for us during the Return of the King coverage. George R.R. Martin, being asked about how Thrones got so different than the books he wrote, said something to the effect of small changes in adaptation early may butterfly effect into bigger changes elsewhere. I think we can see that in play with the love triangle thing with Aragorn and Arwen, especially in how the film characterizes Aragorn. He's not a cocky yet weird king in exile ready to meet his destiny like in the text, but a more likable, reluctant type hero who audiences are more likely to gravitate towards. So the dynamics around their relationship alter too, and Eowyn falls into a position where she's fawning over Aragorn instead of possibly confusing admiration for romantic love. And I go back and forth on the characters regarding whether the extended edition enhances these characters or takes away from them. I love Aowen singing at Theodred's funeral, but I hate her I cook like shit scene with Aragorn on the road. <laughs> I like Faramir having Sam's who was he speech about the Howard dream. His scene at Ausgiliath with Boromir and Denethor is a little more mixed for me. I love more Sean Bean and John Noble, but I feel it's a little too much Denethor in terms of just making him seem like the worst person alive.
1: <laughs> See, this is one of my constant conflicts with the this these film series in particular is because I think like... You know, I stand, I stick by my guns on thinking that John Noble should have been Saruman. Like, I really feel that. But he's so brilliant as Denethor. And if you ignore, like, that Denethor as a character in the books who has, like, his own story and pretend this is just a new character made for these movies, like, God, what a fucking brilliant Denethor. I just kind of feel like, um, and sorry to dunk on both the script and David Wenham at the same time, but, like, I wish they had had Mm -hmm. someone, they'd cast someone as Faramir who could stick up to... John Noble in terms of, like, screen presence, and even to Sean Bean, because um, I think, like, one of the things that is so crucial to me um, about Faramir's character in the books is that, like, is, is he is just a jackass? Like, he is very much just a jackass. Like, he's right, but he's an asshole about it at all times so like he will always be right he will always take the right like position but it's so hard to want to agree with him because he's just such an absolute fucking dickhead about it and I wish they'd cast someone with that energy because that 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 scene where like Denethor John Noble's Denethor is being like stop acting like a dipshit go protect your people you useless piece of shit and David Wedham is just sitting there crying like that to me kind of perfectly encapsulates my problem with the movies which is like have him fight back like have him do something there and like do something more than just crying like a toddler who's getting bitched out like actually properly have him be a bit of like a cocky jackass um and i and it just like oh man i just wish they'd had someone who could match john noble's completely unhinged energy
0: (laughs) no i think you're exactly right it's Almost unfair to put him opposite John Noble and Sean Bean. And granted, both were not as household names as they are now. But both obviously went on to have much bigger careers, as we're going to talk about here in a second. Um, But yeah, I I get you. I think I'm trying to think of who would be the great, like, turn of the century, like, bookish but like serious character presence. Like Brian Cox would be too old. But I would have (laughs) loved for it to be Brian fucking Cox. Holy
1: shit! I just want Faramir delivering a Brian Cox. Fuck off. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think that's great, and like, it's it's weird because I know Boromir's villainy was played up in um, like Fellowship of the Ring and more so in the films. Um, so it's weird that Boromir is just kind of like nice older brother here, and I, th- I think that's kind of fine. But it just it's such a jarring scene for someone who's only. Uh, context is the movies. Um maybe it does color, you know, provide more color to Boromir's character, but it does feel just a little disjointed from how everything was shot. Um and I think just from a musical standpoint, I like that they excluded it because it holds back the Gondor theme for yep. Return of the King. Um because when it when we really start seeing with that musical piece, it really hits in that third film.
1: Yeah. I, I love that bit of the shot of Sean Bean like using the Gondor flagpole as a stripper pole. Like, I think that is like an iconic bit, but I wish they'd found somewhere to like splice that in where it made slightly more sense. Actually, you know what? Damn it, we've we've done this. I was gonna hold back on this, but now I'm not. Um, in the book, right? So, Faramir and Boromir are in, involved in the battle of Osgaliath before the action of the book kicks off. Um, where they lose the bridge and where the nine Nazgul are able to cross uh, from Ithilien into the rest of Gondor and able to start chasing Frodo. Um, And they win that um, by blowing up the bridge... Um, And then it's only Faramir, Boromir, and two other men who are able to swim all the way across the Anduin to get to the shore and save themselves and everyone else dies. And I'm like, that is such a perfect bit of, like, cinematic writing. And, like, of all of the things to not expand on, why would they not expand on this perfect battle that they've got written here and instead write in a completely moronic version of this battle? That like doesn't work in the same way, and also makes Faramir look like a massive bitch. Like, I know I was literally just saying I wasn't going to call him a bitch on air, but oh well. Um, I wish they just done that, and then they could have gotten like the fun explosions in, and like the cool like get the sense of scale of where Osgiliath is and the importance of the river and how like treacherous the river is. And instead, it's just weird stuff about drinking beer.
0: <laughs> yeah, like honestly, um, and I'm just like conjecturing here. But I, I honestly bet like when they were breaking the story, they probably started with that uh, scene and they're like, oh, we should probably give John Noble something to do. Yeah. Um, so they completely rewrote it into a context where we can have John Noble come up and interact with both the brothers, which, uh, you know, a lot of times I'm OK with. Oh, we found this incredible actor. Let's give him more stuff to do. I just don't think it like structurally holds. And again, that's kind of why I'm glad it's not in the theatrical edition. Word. Word. And also, same thing kind of goes for um the Return of the King extended scenes. Like, I really enjoy the Houses of Healing, especially because that's when we get to actually see Faramir and Aowyn interacting. But I'm not into some of the other extended scenes, such as Gothmog chasing Aowyn through <laughs> oh, the God. battlefield. And then he just kind of gets killed by Aragorn and in- unceremoniously. So you have Aragorn saving her for no real reason, I can tell. Because even in the extended edition, they don't interact really after this point. Yeah. Um, so I don't get the point of even including that. And it kind of... What's the word I'm looking for? It feels weird because I feel like the whole... The fact that she's injured from stabbing, you know? Like, I feel like that's a good point to just kind of take her out of commission for the battle. I don't need to also see her doing, like, the World War One trench crawl away <laughs> from an orc at this point
1: yeah i i think it's kind of just like emblematic of, of of um the problem with these films uh which is that sometimes they don't know when to stop raising the stakes um and like i feel like if you think that the stakes were not high enough with the witch king that gets into the point where i think like that is more of a personal problem than a narrative problem like i don't think that anybody who was like The Witch-King interaction was good. What that really needs is more orc on top of it, is someone who should be, like, catered to narratively. Um, But um, all of that kind of needless bitching aside, um, my my genuine question for you um, is when you saw the movie, when you saw Two Towers and Return of the King, well, Return of the King, I would say, for the first time, did you have any sort of inkling that their stories, Feramir and stories, had any sort of like interconnection at all, or were you just like these are two people who are standing next to each other at a coronation?
0: Um. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I didn't like really pick out any like thematic or super character overlap, other than you know they're possibly being disregarded by their house or not considered fairly by the leaders of their households. Mm. Um, But I just, I think when I saw them paired together in the coronation, I'm like, oh yeah, they're probably going to fuck. But I didn't know that. I really honestly didn't know that until I really started reading the books, you know, after I had seen the film. So um, like they just like, the way they were shot made it clear that they were going to be coupling up. Um, Because, you know, they showed Eomer like bowing his head and he was alone. But the fact (laughs) that they showed Faramir and Eowyn together just instantly like struck, oh, there's not like, You know, they're representing their respective kinnings, but they're kind of like presenting as themselves as a couple. So I was able to kind of piece it together from there.
1: Right. That makes sense. I definitely didn't pick it up at all. (laughs) But again, that is definitely, I think, a personal failing on my part from like an inability to to pay Mm. any attention at all to anything. (laughs)
0: one thing I'm just realizing as much as we make fun of our age differences and how differently we came to these and when we saw the films, we were both probably at about the same age when we were consuming these films for the first time, which is kind of neat.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Oh, man. Wild.
0: <laughs> we'll go into some history with the actors, neither of which I've seen a lot of outside of Lord of the Rings, but they've had some they've had respectable careers all the same. Miranda Otto, who plays Eowyn, was born in 1967 to two actors, Barry and Lindsay Otto, in Brisbane, Australia. She had early aspirations at being a ballerina, but found herself on the dramatic side of things, starring in many plays and appearing in films in minor roles starting in the late 80s. She appeared predominantly in Australian-produced films for much of the 90s. The Girl Who Came Late, The Last Days of Shebu, The Nostradamus Kid, and The Well are just some of those titles several of which earned her acting nominations from the Australian Film Institute. Though I didn't know her at the time, the first films I'd see her in would be Terence Malick's The Thin Red Line, and then more prominently What Lies Beneath, a thriller alongside Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer. In 1999, she was cast as Eowyn and would train for six weeks with Sword and Horse for about six months of filming. She apparently earned a lot of respect for her stunt work amongst the people on set. Eowyn remains her most prominent role, though she did get to work with perhaps the world's biggest actor and director in 2005, starring opposite Tom Cruise in Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds, a movie I like, don't love it, but I think it's enjoyable as most Spielberg tends to be. Her film career is sparse thereafter, but she did appear in a couple of television shows I watched. There was 24 Legacy from 2017, a spin-off of Kiefer Sutherland's 24, but sadly without Kiefer Sutherland. He must have been too busy playing big boss. <laughs> anyway, Otto plays a former head of CTU, counterterrorism unit, and wife of a presidential candidate there. That series was extremely bad, and I remember nothing about her role in it. <laughs> a few years prior to that, she was in Homeland, which uncharitably could be considered a 24 <laughs> knockoff. She played Alison Carr in that, a CIA station chief in Berlin. I kind of liked that show for a little while, but it went off the rails fast, and I can barely remember anything she did except be mean to Claire Danes, which, fair, I guess. (laughs) David Wenham, who plays Faramir, is also Australian, being born in New South Wales in 1965. He had five older sisters and one older brother. Ouch. Would it surprise you if I said he was born and raised Catholic? <laughs> Probably not. I honestly don't know how to talk about his career without just reciting Wikipedia. His career is filmed with movies I haven't heard of and me saying, wait, he was in that movie um, at things I have seen. Some of those include Dark City, which is a menu fave and also features Kiefer Sutherland. Did not think he'd get name dropped so much on this podcast. <laughs> Uh, he was in Moulin Rouge, Van Helsing, 300, and Public Enemies. He's also done voice work for video games based on his movies, such as The Return of the King game and the 300 spin-off games. He's done a lot of Australian TV, none of which registers anything for me, but one show he did do that I'm interested in is Top of the Lake, mm. a mystery series written by Jane Campion and Gerard Lee. Wenham stars opposite the main lead, Elizabeth Moss, in the first season, and this series is generally regarded as very, very good.
1: Yeah, it's so fucking good. Um, it is incredibly depressing, um, but I do throw it on for funsies from time to time. Like, Elizabeth Moss knocks it out of the park. Uh, Wedem's character is okay. Uh, he's kind of a non entity, which is funny given the, the kind of role his character plays in the series. Uh, but it's beautifully shot and, like, is just kind of uh, like Lord of the Rings a whole bunch of beautiful shots of New Zealand uh, and it rocks. Um, the other movie that he's in uh, is an absolutely wild movie. And it's called Pope Joan. Um, And it's a movie about the myth of the woman pope. Um, And I I put it on and I was like, I'm sure this will be good. A movie about a woman pope. Sure, that'll be great. Made by the Germans. So I was like, theoretically, there's something to this that might be interesting. Um, Oh, God. The first two acts of it are great. And the third part falls apart. Absolutely fucking collapses. And unfortunately for David Wenham, I could only watch it like him on screen and be like, hmm, Faramir, and then his character has a relationship with a teenage girl and it's me, a teenage girl who is like his foster child. And it's me going, Faramir did fucking what? Uh, so uh, not a movie I would recommend anyone watch unless you like to watch things that are shit, in which case absolutely watch uh, Pope Joan.
0: <laughs> and if you also like things that are shit, just remember we'll be covering the Hobbit movies at some point <laughs> in the future as well. <laughs> oh. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter. You can support our adventures through Middle Earth at patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get access, early access to our episodes as well as a lot of bonus content. And uh, just a note, since we're recording this kind of before we had all of our Patreon goals set up, Uh, we are not reading off names, but we will be returning to that shortly. So apologies for anyone who was expecting their name to be read off this episode. Anyways, I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF.
1: And I've been Emily, also known as Jr. Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter telling hot chicks my nightmares about massive waves coming to fuck me and my people up in the hope that those hot chicks will come away with me to live out Little House on the Prairie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Eartha Gilear and Drethion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.
1: And you desire to have nothing unless a brave battle and brave fuck, motherfucker.
0: (laughs) Okay.